Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. My dad thinks that this episode should be called How to Find Stable Footing in Life. I met Romy when we were both exploring our Jewish roots in Israel, and we reconnected almost 15 years later to talk about becoming parents, our pregnancies, mental health along the way. And this is a real and raw episode with two RFs, Romy Friedman and Rena Friedman. Romy, welcome. I cannot believe it. It seems like just yesterday. Romy was in Israel being an investigative reporter <laughs> of sorts. Oh, yeah. oh, you remember that? You were one of the only people I admitted that to. I had that blog. I was kind of checking out the, the scene and how women were treated on the buses and how women were treated in general in life in Israel. And it was very enlightening to say the least. Like uh, going on a bus ride and having a man tell me that I needed to go to the back of the bus because I was a woman. And I said, absolutely not. Because in Israel, being if you're religious, which I didn't know at the time, the women have to sit at the back of the bus because the men cannot look at the women. There's all of this uh, modesty going on. And of course, I had nothing to do with it. And I said, I'm sorry, but don't look, you know, I'm not going to move. So I didn't move. And uh, it seemed like my experiences in Israel were like that. I was shopping one day and I was in a, it was a grocery store and people don't have a concept of space. And all of a sudden people just started running into me. And this lady just slammed her um, basket into my back. And I stopped and I said, excuse me, you know, please, you know, watch out. Did it again. And I turned around and just like slammed it right back which is not like me, but you know, you just gotta, you have to, Israel seems to be, you have to be very much on the defense all the time over there. Take care of yourself because otherwise you'll get steamrolled. Let's talk so, about the drivers. Oh God. Yeah, no, it's like a free for all over there. It reminds me of Juarez, Mexico, which I got used to living on the border, you know, growing up. It's anything goes all men for themselves. So if you're in the way, too bad. You were always so open and willing to hear me and accept that maybe it was politically incorrect or that I wasn't following the norm, but it's what I saw and what I wanted to get out. And people really appreciated it. That was an interesting time. Did you feel like you were living a double life? Very much so, because I've got a brother that's a full-on Orthodox Jew living in Harnoff, which is one of the most religious areas of, uh, outside of Jerusalem, and he's ultra, ultra Orthodox. So here I was trying to study at a, a seminary, being a Reformed Jew, I should say a spiritual Jewish person, and meanwhile I'm talking about the experience I'm getting from him and from his you know, wife and family and out and about and learning from a very religious Rebetzin, which is a, uh, you know, female, the wife of a rabbi. And meanwhile, I'm writing a blog about all of this ironic stuff. 
I just, I feel like it's really hard as an outsider to walk into something like that because you don't know the rules. Exactly. I didn't know the rules and coming from a reformed background and not even reformed, just kind of culturally Jewish, coming into it was a whole new story for me. I mean, I really was like an outsider coming into a whole new, I mean, I, at first I looked at it as, I felt it was cult-like. I mean, really, I, I felt like I was part of the Harry Potter gang being, you know, encompassed by this inner circle and whatever I learned, I had to keep inside and apply whether I agreed with it or not. And I happened to be one of the only person that didn't agree most of the time. So I may have not looked very favored upon by the people there that were becoming religious. For me, it was all about learning and growing and finding the truth, but not taking one person's idea or perspective to heart, but examining it. So that's kind of what I did. But yeah, it was very challenging. I went from a everything goes to nothing goes. I feel like the environment demands that though. Well, it does. It demands it. And there were so many people that walked right in and two minutes later drank the Kool-Aid and boom, they were a part of it. And for me, and I hate using that analogy. It's so over, you know, cliche, overly used nowadays, but even my brother who had been so independent minded and had been so strong in his values went from one extreme to another, literally within a matter of months. And I just realized that while there's some beautiful beliefs and while I believe in the Torah and all this, I couldn't just jump from one extreme to another as I saw so many people do. So it made it difficult because it's, it's one of those cultures where not necessarily follow the leader, but I mean, everybody's doing one thing and here I am kind of being alone or doing my thing. But I've always been like that. I've always followed my own path. The best part of it was I met you and I met Sarah and I met so many wonderful people that also had their own ideas that were not going to be led astray. They were going to do what was best for them. And that is, I have to say, it was probably one of the best experiences in my life because it really also put a lot of things into perspective. I married a Jewish man. I am raising a Jewish family. None of that was important to me before. And it is now. So I have to say that while I did go against the grain in a lot of ways. I also found my path in Judaism and I'm now following it straight on, you know? So that's, it's, it's a nice uh, balance. What motivated you to want to go? I was living in New Jersey with a non-Jewish guy, but his father was Jewish. His mother was not, he was not raised Jewish. He was very open and willing to follow along with what I wanted, but he didn't make any effort to do so. He, he kind of let me do it on my own. I realized that I myself had a lot to learn and I was kind of at a impasse. You know, I was in between careers and I decided, you know, my brother was already living over there and I had an opportunity to go learn at a seminary. And I just decided, you know what, right now I'm just going to go see where it takes me. I stayed there and then I jumped into the seminary you know, within a matter of a few weeks and just decided that it was time to see where it led me. I also want to talk a little bit about your mental health work and background. Was that your major in college? No. I have always been interested in writing and reporting, TV, print, 
radio, everything, as from a very young age, I've always been a question asker. And I'll never forget, this is just so random, but it, it sticks in my mind. When I was in the fifth grade, one of the girls that I knew, I would say, you know, a, an acquaintance, it became a friend, said to me, Romy, I think your brain is shaped like a question mark. And she, cause she goes, you ask so many questions. And I thought, well, is that an insult or is that a compliment or what? And, 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 it, and of course, at that age, I was young. It, it, I was insulted. I'm like, oh my God, a question mark? That's weird. As I've gotten older, I realized, you know what? It is a, it's, a, it's a compliment because it's true. I'm interested. I'm curious. So it's, I followed along with that, my passion for just wanting to know about everything. And I got my degree in um, broadcast journalism with a minor in psychology. Moved to L.A., to pursue broadcasting and TV reporting and ended up accidentally or maybe on purpose, got a job as a therapist in a mental health facility, outpatient facility. I had to go back and get more training so that I was, you know, qualified therapist. What I did was I tied my broadcasting together with my mental health knowledge and I was writing, I was writing a, a column about it called State of Mind, about destigmatizing mental illness. And then I was working with severely mentally challenged people in order to help them get back out into society and destigmatize the mental illness. So it became a passion. So Definitely not. I was very scared when I first started, had no idea, didn't want to touch anybody, didn't want anybody to touch me. I was, you know, germs and this and that and like crazy about it. I just had all these preconceived notions about mental health. So it was interesting because it was a learning experience for me too, but it ended up being a major passion that I love. Just, I love the, you know, the idea of, of empowering other people and focusing on their strengths as opposed to their weaknesses. Can you talk to me about some of the strengths that you saw? Interestingly enough, my clients were anywhere between the ages of about 15 and 85, all walks of life, educated, some were homeless, some were, came from very good backgrounds and had normal, married, happy lives. And the illness basically developed at a later age and then they became homeless. Lots of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, manic depressive. I mean, there was a lot of extremes plus alcoholism. So they were duly diagnosed with other issues. And what would happen is a lot of the parents and family didn't know how to deal with them and they would get themselves into trouble and end up in jail. One of my clients was a Jewish guy who was obsessive compulsive and he decided to rob a bank. And so he dressed up like a clown and went into a Burbank bank in California and with a gun as a clown and tried to rob the bank. Well, it turned out that it was, a, it was not a real gun and he was arrested and they put him in jail, but they found him innocent by insanity. So basically what happened is he was released and he was put into our program. And then it was up to me as the socialization coordinator to say, okay, I'm going to help you teach you the skills to get yourself back out in working life and in socializing and in enjoying a normal life. And so I was able to work with him, it took a long time, but I was able to kind of work with him on skills that he needed to kind of get back into society. I was able to use my sense of humor. I was able to be silly. I was able to get down and get to know these people in a way that nobody else had bothered to do. And that's what they needed. They needed to be seen as people and human. I was the socialization coordinator. And basically each Saturday we would take an outing. We would go either to 
Santa Monica Pier, we would go to a museum, we would go to a movie, we would go see a concert, whatever it may be. And I would take the group out and we would go and get involved and I would interact with them so that if they were in a public place and they wanted to go barreling through the place, we worked on, well, how do we talk to the store manager? How do we interact with each other while we're in the store? So it became a learning experience for them. We were all in it together. And I had clients like that. I had a guy that murdered his mother and I had another guy that had threatened to blow up the federal building. He was out uh, again by reason of insanity. And I had him, he was a 300 pound man sitting in the back of the van and I'm driving along and there he is, his big face in the mirror smiling at me. And I'm just like, whoa, what am I getting myself into? But I didn't look at it like that because I was trying to see the, human side and not the illness and realizing that he was there to change and that I was going to be part of his change. So it ended up just being an amazing, an amazing opportunity for me because I learned a lot about myself in the process of working with people and realizing that everybody, no matter, you know, where you come from, your age, your size, your color, your religion, you, everybody has something to offer. And it's about finding that. And so many people have given up on these clients that, you know, it was sad. Were you ever afraid of the murderer? I was so scared. One time when I first started, it was the second week, I had 12 clients. We got to the beach and um, we parked in the Santa Monica, the parking lot. I went to the elevator and pushed the on button. And as soon as uh, the doors opened, all of them piled in. I had the guy who had murdered his mother in there. I had the guy that had threatened to blow up the federal building. I had two homeless people. And then the rest were, you know, whatever. It's my second week on the job. The elevator door shut. And all of a sudden, we, I push and the elevator gets stuck. The lights go out and I freaking lose it. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have a panic attack. Because, I, I mean, I had not experienced any of this before and I did not know I didn't want to freak out because if I freak out are they going to freak out I don't know how are they going to react all of a sudden somebody lights up a cigarette they sit down it's like whatever don't matter they're just like enjoying the ride I'm the one that's freaking out and I was banging on the doors and I'm like pushing the button they're telling they're calming me down you know like it's okay it's okay just calm down and I thought to myself wow look at what's happening here I'm the one that's losing it in here. It didn't matter. They all sat down and it took about an hour. And I stood there the whole time, just like, you know, banging and freaking out and it didn't even phase any of them. Yes, I had experiences like that all the time. It was definitely a learning experience. I had guys that were dumpster divers. They would go out and um, I'd look across the street and there they were in the dumpster bin going through their goods. And then they'd come, they'd bring it all in. So what was your training to be so, able to go out? <laughs> on these escapades as i went along i had to go to the county for training i had to become certified i, I ended up having to go back and get a master's degree in social work but that was all getting in the door i didn't need any of that it was it was basically the communication skills with the psychology background that i had and as time went on they started requiring more and more of everybody i finally decided you know i need to go in a different direction but i did go back and get a master's and have continued working and promoting destigmatizing mental health and just working with that population just because i think that it's important i think people just do not understand mental health i want to talk about 
actually you experienced it firsthand with your postpartum depression. Yes. Uh, depression runs in my family and it was never anything I had to hide. My parents divorced when I was about nine and we were one of the first Jewish families whose parents divorced. So we, me and my two brothers were looked upon as basically the black sheep of the Jewish community. So my mom, she had experienced um, depression and so she had always promoted seeing therapist. At the time, back then, I thought, you know, anybody that I was under the impression that if you see a therapist, you're crazy, you're, you've got something wrong with you. So I was always secretive about it, never talked about it. But as I grew up, you know, with, with divorced family and, and all the stuff that came along with that, I grew more and more depressed. So I had experienced depression and had seen therapists for that. But when I got pregnant, it took my husband my eight years to get pregnant. We had to go through four IVF rounds and all which were brutal in the sense that the cost is prohibitive. We did not have insurance. And then the hormones that they put in you cause your whole system to just go berserk and out of whack. And what happened to me was the first three were not successful. And the very last one, I did get pregnant. Thank God I got pregnant and I had I got pregnant with twins. And so very much of a miracle being in my 40s, being at a first-time pregnancy, because of my age and because it was twins, it was high risk. And I had a very rough, rough, rough pregnancy. I was sick through the whole pregnancy. I had terrible stomach pains and I really could not do much of anything. Meanwhile, I started getting, having panic attacks through the pregnancy because I, I don't know if it was the hormones that I had been required to take because when you don't have a natural pregnancy, your body doesn't make the hormones that you need to sustain the pregnancy. So even while you're pregnant, you're being shot up with a, a needle to sustain and to get, be given those hormones that you need to sustain that pregnancy. I ended up having the babies at 31 weeks. I, I didn't find out that I had, was pregnant with twins for three months into the pregnancy. When I found out, what had happened was Ava, the little girl, was a few months behind in the womb and was not getting the nutrients she needed. And towards the end of the pregnancy, around six months, she was losing amniotic fluid. So I had to have an emergency C-section. What happened to me afterwards is I just kind of fell apart. I, I, the panic got worse, the anxiety got worse, and I just didn't feel that I was able to be a good mother. How could I be a mother when I, I just didn't have it in me to take care of my, I mean, I, I just did not know how I was gonna do it. A week after my pregnancy, I had a massive hemorrhage and I lost tons of weight. I didn't gain weight through the pregnancy at all. I had lost weight. So being pregnant with twins and losing weight is not healthy. I think part of me is I'm a hypochondriac. I worry about every little disease. And I think every time I had a symptom, I, if I would freak out. Three of my IVS have been un unsuccessful and everybody I know is having children and I cannot seem to do this. And I was paranoid that I just could not, these babies were not gonna make it. And so I think that also, plus being on the hormones, it just, just exacerbated everything. And it turned into just, you know, my mind going absolutely crazy. So when I did have the kids and they, Ava was in the NICU for four months and Daniel two months, I was just a big mess. I did not feel capable of being able to go home and raise two babies at that point. I was 
had lost a lot of weight. I, after the hemorrhage, I lost tons of blood, became anemic. Doctor wouldn't let me drive, wouldn't let me do anything, had to be bed, you know, bedridden for six months. And I tried to get help. I did not know where to turn. Here I had been dealing in, with therapists and doctors and mental health for many years. And here I was now myself in a position where I did not know where to turn for help. You know, I went to any place that I thought I was going to be able to reach out and get some kind of direction, and it was very difficult. Nobody seemed to know what to do with my situation. What I, was recommended? Going to the Ronald McDonald house and spending the night there. And I thought to myself, are they, are they nuts? What does that have to do with what's going on with me? And I realized in 2014, no one is near capable of dealing with an issue that concerns women, an issue that is so prevalent and people are embarrassed to talk about it. Here I was, educated, came from a good family, had good values, good morals, you know, with a husband and a supportive family and I could not find, and then, and then therapists and doctors and, you know, lawyers in my family who had the means to help, but there was no place for me to go. I ended up confiding in one of the nurses at the hospital and she says you know we've got a social worker here she can probably you know guide you in the right direction so I went to her and I said you know I'm depressed I I don't feel capable of bringing my children home right now I need to get myself back together can you please help me and she appeared to help you know um uh, she appeared to say yeah sure you know we'll see what we can do and the first thing that was recommended was to go to the Ronald McDonald house which has never been tied to anything with postpartum as you know as far as i know and that was not going to be the answer so i ended up staying in the hospital and the day before i took my son home i had I still hadn't gotten any help and i called one of my mentors to come in the process um cps which is child protective services was called and they were informed that they didn't think that i could take the baby home and I was just absolutely mortified and like what I, I just was beyond shocked that instead of helping me the social work from the hospital that's supposed to be there to guide and help patients turned everything around on me and made it out like I was not fit to take my babies home I mean, I was very demoralized. I was, uh, it was unfathomable. I was so embarrassed. So only my immediate family knew, but they did call. They literally followed me home from the hospital. Some, some chick showed up, could not even speak the English language. I don't even know if she was degreed, but she worked with Child Protective Services. Do not know what her experience was. She follows me home, comes into my home and wants to watch me pamper my child, you know, put pampers on my child, bathe my child, because they're assuming that I don't know what I'm doing, because I was depressed and because I asked for help. What ended up happening was, of course, the case was dismissed. They didn't find any evidence of anything, but I, what I did realize then was that I was one of the many, many people that were going through this and had to keep silent because there was nowhere to turn. And it's six years now, and I'm, I'm comfortable to talk about it now, I wasn't before. I was not comfortable at all. I was embarrassed and I was um, disgusted. I did not want to admit that something like that could happen to me. I think it's a cause that needs to be discussed. And there's a lot of people that are, have experienced it. In my opening up about it, I've started to meet people who've gone through the same thing. And I think, wow, had I known that back then, this would have been a lot easier. And you were a first-time mother with very small 
new babies. Yeah, preemies that were miracles. I mean, Ava was in the NICU hooked up to machines for four months, four months. And it made it just all the more difficult. And then in the middle of that incident, while they were in the hospital, we were staying at my dad's house while we were looking for a a home, my husband and I, and my dad came down with um, shingles. And I had never had the chicken pox, meaning that I was a candidate. If I was around my dad, I could catch the virus for chicken pox, which meant that I had to, they banned my husband and I and my dad and anybody that had been around me or my dad from going to the hospital for a month because of the shingles, because they could not take a risk that I was not going to bring it to the hospital. For a month being banned from seeing your kids. How did it make you feel towards God? I was angry and hurt. And after all I'd been through to try to get pregnant, and have babies and go through what I went through in that pregnancy that was just hellish, a hellish pregnancy. Then to go through this, I just, I looked at it as suffering. I I looked at it as, as God is putting this in my life for a reason. I am suffering, but it's only going to make me stronger. It's going to make me a better parent and it's going to make me a better advocate. And so I had to take the anger and turn it into something positive. Nobody ever warned me about pregnancy. I, you know, my mom, the easiest pregnancies and everybody I spoke to, pregnancy is a joy and never in a ma- in million years did I imagine what pregnancy was for me, that pregnancy. I hate, listen, I never, people said, did you ever want to have children after that? And I said, no way, no way. So I was a little bit pissed off. <laughs> I always laugh when people are like, I love being pregnant. (laughs) I'm like, you don't remember. Well, did you like being pregnant? How did you, you (laughs) didn't? Because I, everybody makes it look like such a breeze, you know, and I just, my sister-in-law, you know, she's got six children and never a peep about it. Nothing, nothing. Here I was every single day, like struggling and fighting to stay sane and, and not, you know, and, and the panic that I was experiencing, you know, panic attacks while pregnant, and then you can't take anything to calm it down. Do you feel comfortable talking about the pregnancy before you got pregnant with your twins? Sure. Well, before I got married, I, I always wanted to be a mom. It was something that I always wanted to do. And I wasn't interested in dating. I dated who, you know, guys I liked. I didn't care if they were Jewish, not Jewish. It was not interesting to me. We were having unprotected sex. If I was in a long-term relationship, which I pretty much was for the most part of, through all that time, I was having unprotected sex and I didn't care. If I got pregnant, I would have been thrilled. What happened was I never did get pregnant. And I started wondering what's going on. Why am I not getting pregnant? I wasn't trying but I wasn't not trying. And I thought there's got to come a time. I'd always had a normal period. I'd have, I'd had a normal, everything was normal my whole life. I had cousins and friends that had all kinds of issues, you know, with everything. And they had no problem getting pregnant. For me, it was the opposite. So at that point I started realizing, you know, I better start looking into IVF even before pregnancy. So I did, I started at Kaiser and they wanted to do all this testing and they did test and they found there was nothing wrong at all. They did not find anything at all. As I started going on my journey into Judaism and spirituality and wanting to learn more, I started dating Jewish guys and I started kind of following along this path of of not touching and trying to get to know the person for who they were and not about looks, not about sex appeal, but about 
the person and what do we have in common? And during that time, I really didn't focus on the side of it that had to do with fertility. When I did finally meet somebody, you know, I let them know what was going on. And so after we did get married, we started working on it. Still, I wasn't getting pregnant. And so I started going through in vitro. I started off with ICI, which is the doctor inseminating you. It's, it's a small procedure. It's not a big deal. It happens, you know, in a matter of minutes. I did that three or four times. It did not work. It's expensive, but it, it's a lot better than being on hormones. Um, they give you Clomid, which is something that kind of helps stimulate the egg production. And so I took Clomid for a couple months, did the ICI, never worked. So then we went with a, a doctor. I had an Israeli doctor in um, Los Angeles and I did end up getting pregnant. When I came back to El Paso, I was pregnant and I was had, still had to see an IVF doctor. And that doctor was checking me. And one day he said to me, I don't hear a heartbeat. And he put me in the hospital immediately, told me I had a, oh goodness, what is it called when the baby gets stuck in the fallopian tube? Ectopic? Yes, ectopic. He said, I have an ectopic pregnancy. And he put me in the hospital immediately. He gave me two rounds of methotrexate, which is a chemotherapy that they use for cancer to kill the fetus. Because he said that's the only way it's going to, you know, safely leave my body. So that was a complete and utter nightmare. I was about nine, 10 weeks pregnant at the time. So that was the first experience. A year later, when I went back to my doctor in Los Angeles, he looked at the scans. He said that was not an ectopic. That was a miscarriage. And so that was very difficult. So that was very, very hard. And I had to kind of mourn the loss of a couple things, you know, just, just this idea of putting something like that in my body to kill a fetus that I'd never heard of such a thing, but he was like, he's, he's like, I'm your doctor. You're going to do what I say, period. It was like, there's no thunder or buts about it. And then I tried in vitro again in Los Angeles, did not work. It just didn't happen. So on the fourth time I changed doctors. I was approached actually by a television show. I don't know if you remember, but um, I do. they asked me if, they, they met my husband and they said, you guys, we'd really like to cast you in a, a show about people that are trying to get pregnant. So we said, yeah, 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 why not? So they helped us. Part of the pay, they weren't going to pay us, but what they were going to do is help us pay for part of the, the in vitro. So the, the thing ended up not airing, but we ended up meeting a wonderful doctor. And through that, I got pregnant. And through that experience, I was able to have a wonderful network of people including Rena and all of my girlfriends that I met in Israel and, and became a mommy and, and, and went through it in such a beautiful, loving, caring, genuine way. And it, it all, I got the goosebumps now because it, it happened. I mean, I know God is in charge and God guided me and to where I needed to be at that point. So yeah, so that's kind of my experience. I'm trying to say it in a nutshell because there's so much more involvement, but it led me to where I needed to be. So I am a, a mom of five-year-old twins. Being in COVID times right now, we've been in like under wraps. While it's difficult and challenging, it's the best blessing in disguise I could ever imagine. I get to reconnect with people and spend as much time as I want with my husband and my kids and get back to where my passions are, I guess you could say. Which Let's is, talk about those passions now. So I'm uh, looking at getting back to 
advocating about mental health and going out there and speaking, talking about destigmatizing the idea of mental illness. I think that the society that we're in now, there is so much racism that has resurfaced. There is so much, there's anti-Semitism, there's racism on all boards. And even here locally in the city that I'm in, I'm getting ready to get involved in a podcast about crime. People in, in places that don't know about mental health, that we can educate people, the police force, the border patrol, everybody, so that when they have a situation where it gets out of control and escalates, instead of picking out, a, you know, picking up a gun or a taser, we can de-escalate it by reasoning and talking and getting to know the person and realizing that, no, they're not a threat. They've got something going on and we need to talk about it and de-escalate it that way. Also, looking at mental health and the idea of people that don't have an outlet for them to reach out and we can be supportive and guide them and give them strength and the support and the direction that they need to get the help that they need. There's so many people out there that want to help. And there's so many people that have a story to tell. Has your mom been an inspiration to you? Yes, my mom started off as a Jewish woman that was involved in, you know, junior league and sororities, and she was all frilly, frilly. She was one of the first people in the Jewish community that divorced, and she, they, you know, my parents divorced, and she went and, and, and found herself. And she became a, a psychologist, and through her own journey and finding herself, she has become an amazing you know, therapist. She's the one that got me involved with mental health. I, she was working in the field and she said, Romy, I think that there's a job you may be interested in. I love characters and, and I love people and I love interacting. And she says, this job, you'll meet characters, you'll get to interact, you'll get to be yourself and use your humor. And when, when they hired me on the spot and I realized, you know what? She's absolutely right. What about your daddy? Oh, my daddy was my very best friend in the whole wide world. I called him my lamb, my sweet pea, my honeysuckle. He was just my love. I have to say that I say the love, the lovey of my lifetime. He's my dad, but I just, he was just my everything. And I am so thankful that I had the opportunity to move back to Texas to live with him. His wife passed away. So we had the opportunity to move back to El Paso and just to be with him. And it was the best thing in the whole wide world. He was my inspiration. The thing about my dad is that he kind of was kind of like, whatever, don't Maddie, go with the flow, do what he wants, parks in the motorcycle zone. He was a lawyer, but he made his own rules, did what he wanted to do. And I've always been that type as well. I kind of make my own rules to go, you know, do my own thing, and he allowed me to do it. And I think that that freedom that he gave me and the sense of humor always encouraging us to be up to stuff and also allowed me to be myself with my clients and just, you know, use sense of humor and use playfulness and even unstructured. I'm not structured. I mean, if you notice when we talk, it goes from like point A to point Z and then back to B and then... and. My dad was the same way and I take after him and it's so funny because my little girl Ava is the exact same way. Just, you know, it's kind of like anything goes and she gets away with it and my dad got away with it. I think you and I have that in common and I think, you know, with our dads having that wonderful relationship, I miss him like crazy. He passed away about, it. Uh, it's, it's actually his, the two-year yard site was on June, July 9th and I can't believe he's gone. I Every day I wake up and I'm just like, I can't believe I'm on this earth without him. It just, 
he, he went from being very healthy. He was very active, very physically active, playing golf and tennis. And, and he ended up getting tears in the esophagus, which led to aspiration pneumonia. And from there, he ended up getting on a feeding tube within three months. He didn't want to suffer. He wanted quality of life. And I think it got to the point where he's like, I couldn't eat. He couldn't drink. He couldn't even do anything just using, you know, with the feeding tube. I think he just said, screw it, I'm out of here. And that's what happened. So in that sense, I got it, but it happened so fast. And, and like my head, I didn't even have a chance to like say bye in the sense that literally I took my kids out for Menchie's one night for uh, yogurt and he had, you know, had been sick but not to stick to where, you know, I thought he was going to pass away. We came back and the next morning, my, the nanny came in and said, you know, your dad is not waking up. He's, he's, he's breathing, but he's not waking up. And he was, I guess he was in a coma because he never woke up after that. And I never got to say goodbye. And so that makes it hard because there's still this, like this disconnect, but he comes to me in my dreams all the time. And I talk to him and everything I do is with his, joy and his blessing and his aspiration. I understand that the relationship with one's father is just cherish it. It's just, it's the best. It's the best. And gosh, when I saw that you were doing this with Better Call Daddy, I thought, oh, I want my daddy back. I want to do this like Rena. I want, you know, it's, it's such a wonderful connection that you have. And I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. I'm so excited about it. And you know my daddy. I know your dad. I know your dad. You're my sister. Because <laughs> I'd love to see. I'm looking at your dad's picture right now on this, and I'm just like, oh, hi, Wayne. I remember coming to your wedding, and we drove from the Bay, and I was like nine months pregnant, and my feet were so swollen, they didn't fit in my shoes by the time I got to your wedding. <laughs> I remember. I was like, oh, my God, what a, an honor to have you there. And I remember you were ready to burst. And you know what's so special about that, too, is that it said that it's predetermined who's going to be at your wedding and your funeral. Oh, my God. I got the goosebumps again. For real? Wow. I didn't know that. So if you think about the souls that were present at your wedding, and imagine if it's true that we were what predetermined. A what a trip. That's interesting, tri right? That is interesting. I'm so. keeping you in my life, RF. Absolutely, RF. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been oh, really fun. Oh, I, it's been wonderful. And I'm so glad we reconnected today and got to do it more often. Oh, boy. Let's go to Grandpa. Welcome, Romy. It's nice to <laughs> hear you. And what a candid conversation with Rena. You two are like twins. And isn't it something that you guys found each other and can able to talk about things at really critical times in your lives to be able to also explain how you've experienced in your family certain mental strains is really what it's about. It's not necessarily mental illness. It's more like mental strains that we go through where certain variables come up in our lives, which are like big mountains that are just hard to climb and overcome without some guidance and a path so that we can get through it. It doesn't mean that you're sick. It just means that it can be overwhelming at times and we need some help. And that shouldn't be where it's held against us that uh, 
certain circumstances in our lives are a large, large strain. And what women go through, the strain and the frustrations and sometimes the mental anxieties of having children, I think some men have no idea what a woman goes through. Isn't it something that you and Rena had to have emergency C-sections to save the life of your babies and how we have other members in our family that have also experienced that post-mortem episode after having children. My sister Rhonda had it and uh, she never really recovered and her whole marriage was destroyed and her whole values of life where she's just a bitter woman. I don't think she's ever recovered from it, to be honest. She could use some counseling probably for a long, long time. The sacrifice of women where they have to use different methods to have children and the sacrifice just to have even a normal pregnancy, but to go through all of these other methods and having children. But what's it about? It's really about passing on our story to another generation. And you can't do that if you don't have children and if you don't have grandchildren and you don't have great-grandchildren. So we do have an obligation to think besides ourselves and to see that we can make our story continue through generations. And that's what's called part of your legacy and your family's legacy. It's very interesting that Rena and you both were able to find some of your religious footings and be able to have a way of communicating with God better. And the truth of the matter is, is that this sacrifice that you both have made to be mothers is also well noted as well. And I think that going over some of these issues of what a woman goes through after the birth, society isn't even really even set up, as you said, where it's well enough where it can help women get through it. Just drugging them up or telling them that they'll get over it, I don't think it's that simple. I think it takes some time and healing, almost like if you have a C-section, it takes time to heal. And uh, Rena has gone through two miscarriages. My mom has lost two full birth children and comes back for more to continue to try to build her family. It shows how unselfish mothers really are, where they sacrifice their bodies and their mental stability at times to have children. It's just a, tr a tremendous gift that men have, and sometimes they don't give the woman full credit for, which they should. What did you think of her job that she had working with people who tried to blow up the federal building or rob a bank in a clown outfit? Well, this, this is very interesting because I had an employee that kept running out of here and sneaking out at lunch and sometimes not coming back. Uh, let's just call him Larry without giving his last name. And he didn't come back one day, you know, and of course I docked this time. And I, I told him, you know, Larry, there's just so many times that you can keep chasing after this girl and not be responsible to your job. I says, you could go out tomorrow and rob two or three banks. And if you don't do it right, you're not going to be successful at that either. Well, after I fired him, he went out the next uh, day and robbed three banks. There's like a blue uh, paint or something blew up on him where he didn't even get the money. And he ended up going to jail for five or seven years. Thank God he didn't say, well, my boss told me that uh, I should go out and rob some banks. And I went ahead and tried it to see if I could be good at it. And it kind of blew up on me. 
the the irony to this story is that he ended up only stealing $21,000. And ironically, his profit sharing was $21,000 with all the different times that he worked at the company. And he passed away. And we were never able to find his heir for the money. And the government ended up getting that $21,000 from his profit sharing. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Rin10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show.